Good morning, Gator Nation. Welcome to the 2022 season recap episode of the In All Kinds of Weather forecast. I'm your host, Neil Shulman. You can follow me on Twitter at All Kinds Weather, on Instagram at All Kinds Weather blog, and on Facebook and YouTube under the name In All Kinds of Weather. My co-host, Dustin Smith, with me today. You can follow him at I-A-K-O-W Dustin on Twitter. My other co-host, Chris Yanes, also with me today. You can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Chris Bits. A lot to get to today. We're going to run through housekeeping stuff before we get into the crux of our episode. Gator basketball with a big win today. But while they won today against FAMU in big, big fashion, they also got crushed by West Virginia by 29 points a week ago, something that we did not get to talk about on the last episode because the game happened after we recorded. Nonetheless, that was disturbing. Today's win over FAMU a little bit more encouraging. We'll talk about all that a little bit more down the road. Also, congrats to Gator Volleyball on advancing to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA Tournament. They dispatched FAMU and Iowa State. They now face Pittsburgh Thursday night in Madison, Wisconsin, where they already have a big win this year. They went to Wisconsin and beat the Badgers, number one in the country. They'll face them again if they can beat Pitt. In all likelihood, Wisconsin has to win their own match, but I would assume that they would, given that they have lost very few times this year. Also, shout out to my boy, James Houston. Three NFL sacks in his first two games, got two a week ago against Josh Allen, got one today against Trevor Lawrence, looks like Lawrence might have been hurt. Thankfully, that was not the case. He was able to resume play. Houston did go up to him after the game and you know wish him well and say, I'm sorry if, if what I did hurt you. Lawrence responded saying, it's okay. It's just a football play. I understand. Good luck to you the rest of the way. The two shook hands and and left it at that. Left it on a positive note. So, you know, a lot of a lot of Gator Jag fans are not too happy with me tweeting out my elation about that play from Houston on Sunday against the Jaguars. But the two did meet after the game. I have spoken with them. They did. They did mend fences. It's all good. And uh, yeah, thankfully Lawrence is okay. That's the most important thing. Lawrence is fine and. Obviously, nothing dirty about that. Just, you know, James making a football play. So anyway, quick word about our sponsor slash partners before we get into the Gator football piece of the pod. We are proudly partnered with the Gator Good Foundation, which sends underprivileged and deserving Gator fans to the swamp. We collect donations from fans and use them to bring someone to his or her first ever Florida Gator football game. If you believe you or someone you know is worthy of the honor for 2023, please email us GatorGoodFoundation at gmail.com. As always, donations are very much appreciated. So if you'd like to donate to our cause, please go to our website, GatorGoodFoundation.com, and click on the donate button. Second, we're proudly sponsored by Stingray Branding. These folks will put a sting in your marketing and deliver results that will wow your clients. Whether it's web design, logo design, branding, graphic design, social media management, search engine optimization, marketing strategy, or mobile app design, Stingray Branding has you covered. If you or someone you know needs professional help in any of the above, here are three great reasons why you should choose Stingray Branding. Number one, it is a veteran-owned business. Can't really think of a much better way to properly thank those who serve our country than by giving the business. Two, it's run by a UF alum and big-time Gator fan. And three, they've got the personal stamp of approval from in all kinds of weather because they did our new logo. They did our new website. They did the Gator Good Foundation website. They did the Gator Collective website. They did the new Gator Collective logo, 
and I do all the marketing for the Charleston Gator Club. So if you are listening to this podcast and you need help in any of the aforementioned areas, rest assured that Stingray Branding will more than take care of you. To view their services and rates, go to stingraybranding.com. And with all that fun stuff taken care of, Chris, Dustin, both with me today. Guys, a ton to talk about. We know the Gators Bowl location and opponent. We have the CFP uh, set up. Let's talk about that stuff real quick. This is our season recap episode. But before we get into that, CFP, Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and Ohio State. Dogs versus the Bucks in Atlanta in the Peach Bowl, Wolverines and Horn Frogs in the Fiesta Bowl in the desert. Everyone else has given their thoughts on this, so we may as well join in and do so ourselves. Real quick, uh, did the committee get the four teams right? What do you think of the matchups, and who do you think wins it all? So I think that with with this selection, I think they got probably the four most deserving teams. I don't think they got the four best teams. And that's always a question with the college football playoff. Are we here to select the four most deserving or four best? If it were the four best, then this should be a playoff of Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, and Michigan in the playoff, not TCU. Uh, No disrespect to TCU. I just don't think the strength of schedule is there. Uh, especially in the Big 12 as a conference, and their non-conference opponents were not that strong either. So I, I just don't think it was the four best teams. And, you know, now, I mean, you look at the, the way they set it up, I, I don't even think that they got the seating right because now the number one team, the um, congratulations, but you get to go play Ohio State in your first game, whereas Michigan gets to play TCU, who I think a lot of us would agree Ohio State is a better team than TCU. So Michigan's going to get the better uh, matchup, and they're not even the highest seed in this in this playoff. So moving forward, and, and now we also saw this week that the, they're going to be expanding the playoff to 12 teams in 2024. You know, we're going to have to start getting the seeding a little bit more right to make sure we're matching up teams um, so we have better competitive matchups. Yeah, Chris, I would echo what you just said. It's frustrating. We all know that Alabama would beat half the teams in the in the allotment, and it's not even close. Now, obviously, Michigan and Georgia look bar none the best teams in the country, and so they're one and two. So from the standpoint of are the best teams in the playoffs, yes. Is Alabama – what they've been in the past, no, they're not. So from that standpoint, you could make an argument that they got it right. But unfortunately, we all saw what TCU did. Now, obviously, they're deserving. They didn't lose a game during the season. They ha- they didn't lose in regulation at all in the season. In fact, it took overtime to bring them down. But Kansas State is not an amazing opponent. Anytime you lose to Kansas State, that's that's questionable. Now you look at team you look at Alabama, they lost to LSU on the and they lost to Tennessee on the road. Okay. But both those opponents were pretty darn good. Um they lost on the last play. Let's also put that out there. Exactly. It was on the final play of the game, not by 25 points or so. It was on a last second field goal and Brian Kelly rolling the dice and going for two. Exactly. Exactly. But ultimately it's frustrating, and ultimately, there's nothing that we could do about it. So the big thing that we can do is, uh, well, first off, Neil, I want to hear what you have to say before I, I jump the gun on on our next topic of discussion. What are your thoughts? 
I mean, I just echo what, what Chris said. The committee, the committee has to decide what it wants to do, and they'll have to decide what they want to do. Also, when they expand to twelve, do you want the best teams, or do you want the most deserving teams to play for the national title, the politically correct play? If you want the four best teams for this year, you got to ask yourself: Do you think? I, I hate to sound like Nick Saban. I'm I'm not very proud of myself for this, but to echo Nick Saban, do you think TCU? or Alabama would win on a neutral field. I happen to think Alabama would. Do I think this is a particularly dominant Alabama team? No, I don't. I think it's a down team for Alabama. But do I think that they'd be favored against TCU? And do I think that, more importantly, because you play games on the field and not on paper, do you think Alabama would beat TCU? Yeah, I do. And the resume backs that up because the best part of TCU's resume is a road win at Texas – well, Alabama has that exact same data point on their resume as well. And they also went on the road and beat an Ole Miss team that was ranked in the top 15 for most of the season. They fell off at the end. But, I mean, being ranked top 15 in mid-November is a sign that you're a pretty good football team. And then, Chris alluded to this too, you got to answer for the fact that in non-conference games, TCU scheduled a Colorado team that went one and 11. Now that record is not TCU's fault. They didn't know that when they scheduled Colorado back in 2015, I think it was, but still they went one and 11. Then you schedule Tarleton state and a a mid TC or a mid SMU team and Alabama on top of the fact that they already play in a far better conference schedule, Texas, which is placed on top of that sec schedule. So if you're going to make the politically correct play again, Sure, they got it right because you can't punish TCU for playing that extra game against a team that they already beat. But if you want the four best teams, no, they didn't do that. Matchup wise, guys, we got to we got to make some quick picks on that. Uh, who do we who do we like in those those two games and then in the title game? So I'm going to go upset, and I and it's going to be unfortunate for the dogs, but I, I like Ohio State to upset Georgia in the semifinal game in Atlanta. Which that that's, that game's in the Peach Bowl, so it's gonna pretty much be a home game for Georgia. So it'd be kind of a uh, nice to see those dog fans uh, see one take one L in there. But I, I like I like Ohio State little redemption story, and uh, I like I like Michigan over TCU. So we're gonna get potentially a rematch in the national championship game. Maybe a little bit of the an ode to the 1996 uh, rematch of Florida and Florida State, where. Florida State defeated Florida the final week of the season, and Florida won the national championship. And uh, I'm not uh, – I am going to predict that Ohio State actually does that, though. They will beat Michigan for the national championship. Ryan Day gets his redemption. Yeah, Chris, I like that pick. Unfortunately, it's going to be very difficult to pick against Georgia. They're, they've been the best team all year. And I don't think it's been close. Now, the irony is that anybody who's not had Georgia at the top of power rankings, they've had Ohio State up there. So this is certainly an incredible game. And that that uh, big-time loss to Michigan in the final game of the regular season was incredibly surprising from the Buckeyes. So it should be an incredible matchup. I'm going to pick the Dogs close. Um, I'm also going to pick TCU to beat Michigan. Um, for the sake of college football sanity, if you're going to put a team like that in, they have to make some sort of run in the college football playoff in the past. Uh, There's been mistakes. For example, that one year Michigan State got absolutely destroyed in the first round. 
Um, but yeah, I'm I'm gonna pick I'm gonna pick the upset on the other end. Um, just because watching Michigan, I don't know. I I I think that I think that there's a lot of pieces on TCU that that I think will help them out. Um, but ultimately, I'm gonna have to go with unfortunately the dogs to win it all. Um, hate to make that pick, and Chris, I darn hope you're right, but. It's really hard to pick against Georgia right now, especially with how well they're playing. Well, the thing that people may not may or may not be aware, Ohio State travels very well for big games. And I mean, Atlanta is not that far from Columbus. Obviously, it's cl- it's far closer to UGA than it is to Ohio State. But that's I had to guess so, someone someone go on maps and, and double check this for me. But I would I would guess it's about a six and a half, seven hour drive from Columbus to to downtown Atlanta. So, I mean, Ohio State fans will do that in the tens of thousands. So, yes, Georgia will probably have a slight advantage in terms of fans, but not not by as much as they had against Oregon, for sure. And honestly, I don't think that has a ton to do with it because Ohio State is. Uh, maybe Tennessee can can argue this, but Ohio State's probably the most talented offense that Georgia's faced all year. So Georgia's defense, which has been very good this year, is going to get tested like they probably haven't been tested, aside from maybe Tennessee, all year long. So I think Ohio State's going to play angry. I think they're going to play with steam coming out of their ears, desperate for that Michigan rematch, which... Remember, that was a game for three and a half quarters. It wasn't like Michigan went up 38-3 and then just coasted from there and wound up winning by 25. No, that was a game for three quarters. Michigan, uh, I don't know how you don't, I don't know how you don't tackle Donovan at, at any point in that game, but Michigan pulls away in the fourth quarter. Ohio State will be gnashing their teeth for this for this rematch, but in the end, I just think Georgia's running game salts it away, and it's a Georgia-Michigan rematch in the title for last year's semifinal. I don't think TCU is going to get embarrassed, but I think Michigan's just better at the line of scrimmage and they should wear TCU down by the fourth quarter. So Georgia, Michigan rematch for the title. I think Michigan puts up a much better fight than they did last year. But I think for all the flaws we've seen from Stetson Bennett, he, he has made the plays when he's had to for pretty much all of his career. And I expect him to do that one more time, win the natty for Georgia. And after all those years of 1980 and 14,000 and counting, Georgia's going to go back to back and that will not be fun, but I have not seen anything to lead me to think that anything else is going to happen. So Florida also in a bowl game, not one of nearly this significance, but they do get their six wins. They got that after South Carolina, they are six and six. They are playing Oregon state in the Las Vegas bowl on December 17th. This is Florida's first ever trip to the Las Vegas bowl. Their first ever game against Oregon state. Got a fun little connection there as former Florida outside linebacker Andrew Chatfield now plays for the Beavers. We will see him uh, in a couple of Saturdays, but definitely some cool things about this game. Also, definitely some negatives about this. And we'll do a bowl game preview when we know more about who's opting out as we get closer to the time. But just for now, uh, guys, your, your quick initial impressions of this matchup. Well, it's another Pac-12 opponent. We uh, disposed of the Pac-12 champion. So actually, first off, congratulations to the the Utah Utes and their fans on repeating as Pac-12 champions, beating USC. They're going to the Rose Bowl. feels pretty good getting that win early in the season because we kind of knew that was a good team that we beat in the first week, which I think is why our expectations rose for our team this year after that. But another Pac-12 team, Oregon State, probably one of the most uh, least talked about 
stories in college football this year, but what an incredible turnaround uh, for, for that team. And, you know, I think it's going to be a tough matchup for us there. I don't, I haven't really had an opportunity to do a deep dive into the roster yet uh, to see, you know, what they're, what kind of people they're bringing back if they have any opt outs, but you know, this is a team that has steadily gotten better and better. They had a losing record in 2020. They finished with a winning record last year at seven and six, and now they're nine and three. They were in it for the Pac-12 title game appearance up until almost the last week of the season when they upset Oregon. So this is going to be a tough matchup. And I think with not having very likely all of our players in our roster now that we're up to, I think it's 16 or 17 uh, opt-outs, you know, dismissals, portal decisions, whatever it may be. And that number is growing by the day. So I think it's going to be a similar situation last year as far as personnel goes when we had the Gasparilla Bowl. But I think the attitude will be different, though. I will say that the attitude of this team, the guys that are going to be coming back, uh, you know, the Trevor Etienne's, the Montreal Johnson's, the Ricky Pearsall's, the guys that are going to be playing next year for this team, they're going to be hungry to put uh, to leave this season on a high and to do it with a winning record. We don't want to have our first back-to-back losing record season since 78-79. You know, that was something we need to try and avoid. But it's going to be a challenge to do it on 13 days now. We're not even going to have we're going to be able to use the full allotment of 15 practices for this game. So, And to top it all off, early signing day, it is now three weeks away. And this staff has prioritized flipping this roster and making sure that we get guys that are going to be officially entering the transfer portal tomorrow. So there's a lot of work to do the next three weeks here in this program, all with a bowl game going on. So it's a fun opportunity to go out West and watch our guys play out there. Cause we're going to be doing it again the first week of the season next year. But this is a, this will be a challenge to play the number 14 team in the country. Yeah, Chris. I think it's going to be a formidable opponent. I mean, the Beavers have done a phenomenal job this year going 9-3 and three in the Pac-12, and that's a respectable 9-3. and three. Anybody who has watched Pac-12 football this year knows that there's a ton of excellent teams. You know, teams like Oregon, USC, Utah. I mean, that's only the top of it, but they've been pretty stellar. And speaking of Oregon, the Beavers have come off a big-time victory against the number at the then number nine team in the country, Oregon. Um, so we've got a work cut out for us. Um, the saving grace is, I do believe that, I mean, Chris, I agree with you. I think the saving grace is that this team's going to play hard. Whoever's in the game is going to go and give their all. We're not going to see what we saw last year against central Florida. Florida's really going to give it their all in this game. Um, the hope is that they stay focused and that they uh, they come ready to go. Um, the big unfortunate question mark for this game is, of course, the quarterback position. Unfortunately, it looks like we're not going to have our starting quarterback. And I'm going to leave it at this, but the other guy who could have potentially made a name for himself in this game, who also threw passes this season, is has taken himself off the team because of poor decisions that he's made. So we're left with playing a quarterback potentially who's not played a single snap. Now, selfishly, I'm hoping with everything I have that Anthony Richardson does come in and does find a way to play this game. But that's just me being a fan hoping for something that's very unlikely. It is very 
unlikely, and I hope I'm wrong. And I'm sure Neil's going to come and be like, Dustin, what are you talking about? But it's very unlikely that my uh, my my pie in the sky dream of Anthony Richardson coming in and putting putting up a final game of tape for his NFL career. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. So without a quarterback with experience, it's going to be hard to play against this team who has great defense and has played great all year. So it's going to be hard. Not quite ready to pick the game. We'll, we'll do that in a later episode, but more than likely I'll be picking the opponent to win. So that's my thoughts. Neil? I think you're being very, very generous to Jalen Kitna to call what he did poor decisions. I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. But Neil, um, Neil, you've you've heard me off the record. Yeah, um, no, I, I uh, yeah, Dustin, I what he Dustin did. is yeah, no, D- Dustin, and I mean we all are. I think all of humanity is pretty grossed out and uh, not very. We we do not have a very high opinion of Jalen Kitna, but uh, anyway, yeah, Florida's going to have a quarterback that's not taken any real meaningful snap this year. That's not going to help. I do think, I, I do think that you guys are right and that the attitudes are going to be different for Florida. I'm more concerned about the incredible inconvenience that Florida's got to deal with now uh, in, in playing this matchup. I, I hate it. I, I absolutely yeah. detest this matchup. There's nothing I can do about it. It's better obviously to go to a bowl game than not better to get, some of your extra practices in than zero extra practices like the Miami hurricanes. But I mean, 13 days when we're recording, this going to be 12 days when this is released for Florida to get 15 practices in, they're not going to get them all in. They're going to lose the opportunity to get some of those extra practices in that they were allotted by being eligible for a bowl game. And that is an inconvenience right there. There's the second inconvenience that Florida is going to be playing a bowl game 2000 miles away from its campus on the last weekend that they could potentially host recruits for their final official visits before early sunny day. That is a really, really bad inconvenience that Florida's got to deal with. That is a killer for Florida because it it completely deprives Billy Napier, who is a great recruiter, and his staff also comprised of great recruiters, deprives them all of the chance to close with a lot of recruits it completely wipes out the Gators' chance to be the last visit for any recruit that may be on the fence unless, I mean, Napier wants to ditch the team and take a red-eye flight back home from Vegas to Gainesville on Sunday morning, which also would suck. But, I mean, yes, other schools would have to balance bowl game prep with hosting recruits, the other schools that play after early signing day, but at least they still get the chance to host recruits and be that last visit. It may be a little annoying for them to have to shuffle back and forth between bowl game prep and, Hey, how you doing? You having a good time? Okay, great. Here's, you know, all that stuff, but they will have that chance. Florida loses that. And you know what? At the same time, guys, that's, that's what Florida deserves. You go six and six, you don't get to make any demands. You deserve to be inconvenienced for the, for you just not being very good. You deserve a bad situation. You put yourself in that position. Florida's eight and four this year. We we beat Vanderbilt and FSU to finish the year. Completely different discussion. Maybe Florida then can throw its weight around a little bit more and, and demand a post-early signing day bowl. But no, six and six, you got what you deserve. Uh, you put yourself in this bad position. And well, now you got to live with the consequences. I just wanted to follow up on that, and I think you're absolutely right. When you lose to Vanderbilt, you re- you forego and you forfeit the right to be happy about what bowl game you're in. We 
we are basically we we don't have a say and it's it's frustrating it's awful but for every complaint of inconvenience let that be a fire in your behind to let you know that there's better things to come and we're not going to have an inconvenience bowl ever again because we are going to be on the up and up we're not going to have six and six seasons again because we're going to be on the up and up and i believe that and that all starts with this early signing day, and that all starts with what we do in this coming year. Yeah, I mean, you could also say don't lose to Kentucky. Don't lose to LSU. You know, maybe don't let LSU score six touchdowns on their first six drives of the game. I mean, you can pick any two games that Florida lost. Georgia would always have been a tough one, but you can pick any two games that Florida lost and say win those two, go eight and four. You're not in this spot. You can demand more. You can demand better. But nope, Florida did this to themselves. I it sucks, but at the same time, I have no pity for them. It's it's their fault and their fault only. And that's a good transition into the crux of today's episode. It's going to be our season recap episode because I don't think we're going to learn anything in the bowl game other than maybe a, a stray name or two here or there to look for in spring practice. We'd like to win. I'd I'd like Florida to win and get a winning season. I'd rather not have a losing season two years in a row, but with all the opt-outs that they're starting to become more prevalent in college football, and no one's going to be hit harder than that, I think, than Florida this year, these games are slowly losing their relevance. And I think, I mean, most of our listeners are already kind of gearing up for recruiting and, and the offseason anyway. So we will do a post-game recap episode of the bowl game, but I'm at least treating this like a scrimmage because for all intents and purposes, that's kind of what it is. It's like, you know, we, we have our spring game, well, this is this is a winter game against another school. So for all intents and purposes, our season is pretty much over. So today we're going to put a bow on our 2022 season. And first topic of discussion here, guys, uh, we did our preseason predictions. We talked about what we what we thought Florida should do, what we thought what Florida could do to make it a success, what we thought a floor was and all that. So given that and then given what we saw play out on the field for each of us was 2022 a success was it a failure or was it sort of a neutral in between tbd na sort of result for you yeah i'm gonna go with the is it incomplete great i think that there's still a lot to be seen and a lot I think if I'll say this, if we end up with a top five recruiting class at the end of this season, I'll say it was a success. That's really how I'm going to judge it is just how we're building for the future, how we're building to be set up for success in that year two, three jump with Billy Napier. That's where your coach really has to start being judged. You know, I obviously the results in the field were less than ideal. I mean, it was a disappointment for sure. I think we all predicted no worse than seven and five. Some of us were saying maybe eight and four going into the season. And we, we went six to six in losing to Vanderbilt, which we should never lose to. We've got to start beating these opponents. We've got to start beating some of these opponents uh, that we're supposed to consistently. But as far as the season goes, I, I think that it's all for me based on how Billy Napier remakes his roster in the offseason. We're tracking now to at least, I mean, I'll, I'll think probably 50% of this roster will be flipped going into next season. That's guys that have left the program via draft, portal, dismissal, whatever it may be, and then bringing in transfers from other schools, 
Obviously, the high school recruits are up to 22 right now in the 2023 class. That number should go up by before signing day in December and February. For me, this season, I'm judging it all on how Billy Napier recruits. It's a talent acquisition business. That's what he said at his open press conference one year ago this week. He has delivered on, I think, on some of that. And But we are looking for a big finish here to get to that top five ranking to be up there with the top teams in the SEC, the LSUs, the Georgias, the Alabamas. We need to get, we're not going to get ahead of probably either any three of those schools, but we can at least get very close to LSU in recruiting, who just played for an SEC title in Brian Kelly's first season. That would be a major success recruiting wise, in my opinion. So I think it's incomplete because I don't know how recruiting is going to finish here in the next couple of weeks. And obviously the disappointment of going six and six and being in a, you know, pretty lackluster bowl game, two consecutive seasons. It's just not fun. So next year is really where I'm going to start turning up. I've been patient. I've, I've, I've held back. I've remained positive. But next year when this roster is at least half of it are pretty much going to be players that Billy brought in, I'm going to want to see improvement. Week to week improvement, consistency. We'll talk about what later in this show, what we expect for next season. But for this season to be a success, he's got a close strong on recruiting. So, Chris, I I mean, you you knew this was coming. Dustin is, is gnashing his teeth, I know. But I, I respect that opinion. I don't agree with it totally, but I can respect it. But as, as long as you're on the same page with me on one thing, this is the only year that that will ever fly for Billy yes. Napier. Yeah, and, and that's really what I'm getting at is I'm saying next year, like the, six and six cannot happen. The man will be on the hot seat at six and six next year, like burning hot seat going into year three if you have a similar record. Like, I mean, I'll say he's got to win minimum eight to nine games next year, minimum. I mean, I, I would prefer nine to ten, but – minimum eight to nine games next year. So I no, this can never happen again. You get a you get a one year pass because what let me let's 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 think back a year ago. He comes in, he had just completed the, the conference title game in at Louisiana. Okay. He flies with his family the next day to Gainesville is introduced as the next head football coach of Florida. Within 15 days he has to sign an early signing day class. He was not able to get guys out of the portal that he fully wanted to. And a lot of guys that I, I don't think actually hopped in the portal that he was expecting to. I think he was expecting to flip the roster a little bit faster in year one. He wasn't able to do it, but he was able, he had to evaluate what he had this year. And now we're seeing, I think, the 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 the, the major roster turnover that we had maybe hoped for in year one, but just didn't have the time to do happening right now. So year one was really, I think, just a learning experience for this staff, this for Napier and figuring out what we have to do to execute the plan in the future. But yes, there's no way that this can happen again in this tenure. Well, I'm not even talking about the record. I'm talking about the fact that recruiting results are more important than on-field results. That will never, and I repeat, never be the case again. On-field results are the most important thing. And recruiting is obviously tremendously important, but we will never again say this record or that record is okay as long as we recruit in the top five or the top 10. That will never happen again. In, in a year one, yes. One, yeah, definitely. Year one, year right. One. Year one is the only year we will ever say that. 
Yes. Okay. That's facts. All right. So we're on the same page. There. So Dustin, what about you? What do you think? Was year one a success, a failure, or neutral for you? In light of the team being one of the most highly inconsistent Florida teams that I've seen in my time being a Gator fan, and uh, you know, maybe maybe not as long as Neil, but we we've seen quite a bit of going of Florida football. Uh, going back to for me, my my first uh, season of studying Florida football was 2005. So seen a lot of football. I've not seen a team this inconsistent. And up until kind of that South Carolina game and really up, up until right before that Vanderbilt game, I really felt like we were on par with sort of the expectation for the season. I mean, of course, the team was inconsistent. Of course, we kind of traded some pretty bad losses with some incredible victories. I mean, you look at the first two games of the season, you have that amazing victory to the Pac-12 champion, that 2022 Pac-12 champion. We beat them first game of the season by three points in the swamp. And then we come back in that very same swamp and we lose by 10 to a Kentucky team who at the time we thought was pretty good. Kentucky couldn't even score 10 points on Georgia. Okay, at least we put 20 points on Georgia, right? So. I, I sell that to say that I really feel like, sort of like Chris, the verdict is still sort of out in terms of whether it was a success or failure. You can't do this again, in, in, in Neil's words, and it be considered anything close to a success. The Gators' standard is competing for championships, and a 6-6 six and six season is not competing for championships. Losing by 7 to Vanderbilt is not competing for championships. Getting obliterated by teams you should be in the game with. Case in point, Georgia. Okay, Georgia's really good. They're really elite. They'll probably win the championship this year. You gotta. You, I, I I'm not gonna say that that Napier is gonna beat Georgia every year, but the expectation should be that game should be competitive every year. That game should come down to the fourth quarter every year, and that's not where we're at. And because of that, it's hard to say that it's a success. But like Neil said. We have an opportunity this year to have a top seven, top five recruiting class. And that coupled with the entire roster being flipped. And we'll get to we get to it at the end of the episode. But if we can if we can go nine and three or better next year, if we could be competing for championships, if we could be in the top 15, top 10 in college football playoff polls at some point next year, that's going to be a place to start. But the crap that we saw in the field at times. Again, I'm, I'm just going to say this. You don't lose to Vanderbilt. That's not the Gator standard. That's not what you do. And it can't happen again because that's inexcusable. Having a, a, a defense ranked in, in, in the bottom 30 in the nation, that is unacceptable for the Florida Gators. Unacceptable. And my thought process was before the season started, if this was the kind of season we'd have, at least we'd have Anthony Richardson to come back and build upon. But unfortunately, it doesn't look like that's the case. And unfortunately, it looks like we're going to have to start over at the quarterback position. So we're sort of in a bad spot right now. So it's hard. It's hard, yeah. man. Deal. I need to stop talking. What are you thinking? 
No, I mean, you didn't get your, you weren't on the on the post game Vandy pod, so this is really your chance to just let it all out. And and look, Dustin, it, it's it's weeks later now, but that loss was absolutely disgraceful. I said it on that pod. I'll say it again today. When you lose to Vanderbilt in football, you disgrace the Florida Gators logo. That is not a result that should ever happen unless your team is literally and completely wiped out by injuries and you're down to maybe 30% of your scholarship players. That's the only time where it is acceptable to lose to Vanderbilt. If Vanderbilt now, if Vanderbilt ever becomes a respectable program, like if they get another James Franklin and he's got them at eight and four, nine and three, most years, okay, then we could change that. But that that is not the state of their program, and thus that loss was a disgrace. So not not this year. That that was a bad Vanderbilt. No, it's team. not. A, it's not a good Vanderbilt team. They went five and seven. No. They're not in a bowl game. They went two and six in the SEC. That's better than they were last year. But it's two and six in the SEC is still not good, and we lost to them. So that's it. Nope. That's disg- it. Nope. Disgraceful. So that's it. You said it. Um, better than they were last year, but not a not a high ceiling at all. And we right. lost to that team. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep my answer to this very simple. I'm actually not going to use recruiting. I'm going to separate the two completely and just talk about what we saw on the field. So throwing it back to the F the FSU games, uh, pregame moments, like about 10 minutes before kickoff, I tweeted this out that this game will define if the season is is a success or a failure. And people on social media accuse me of being prisoner of the moment. They're saying, no, you're inflating one game. This one game shouldn't determine that. My response is, this team is six and five right now. Before the year started, we did our win projection totals on the state of the program address pot. We all had Florida between seven and eight wins. I actually said Florida was going to finish uh, with 7.51. That was my number, which is almost perfectly equidistant between seven wins and eight wins. After we went through the percent chances we thought Florida had to win each game, mine came out to be 7.51. So, yeah, those numbers add up. Eight and four would be a solid first year. Seven and five would not be great, but given the talent disparity, it would be acceptable. And six and six would be a failure. Again, I totally understand the talent issue on the roster. Mullen did not leave us with a lot of talent. I, I got it. I, I understand that. And that's why we lowered our expectations because in a normal year, seven and five is not acceptable at Florida. Eight and four. Okay, you know, you can tolerate that as a floor, but generally, no, we shoot higher than that. We know that eight and four does not get coaches extensions here. We've seen that with Ron Zook. You you lose four games a year, you will get fired. But for the first year, we will accept that. So having said all of that, fail. It's a failure because we all said, we all agreed, seven and five was our baseline minimum expectation. We did not reach that. This is a failure. There were positives. Yeah, sure. Utah, South Carolina. I liked what we we saw against Tennessee, but put the whole season together and it's a failure. And I'll also add that just because year one is a failure does not mean that subsequent seasons for Florida under Billy Napier will also be failures. And those subsequent seasons are going to mean a hell of a lot more and do a lot more to determine how Napier ultimately fares here. The seasons will not all be weighted equally. Year one will not be nearly as relevant in terms of judging him as subsequent years are. But because this is us taking the 2022 season and putting it all in a vacuum, putting it in isolation and evaluating that on its own merit. And because we set very specific metrics for success in year one, and we did not hit them. Yes. Year one of Billy Napier's tenure does indeed go down in history as a pretty clear failure. 
And that pretty much leads us into our next topic of discussion uh, is to me. And I think to all of us, we agree six and six on the field is not good enough. We, you know, Chris and Dustin said that recruiting has more to do with their, their answer to success or failure than mine does, but we agree six and six on the field is not good enough, not close to good enough. We have to do better in 2023. So let's talk about exactly what will have to happen for Florida to be better in 2023 and and let's you know stay away from the obvious like get more talented players okay got it we we know that so more specifically what has to improve in 2023 and what do you think the path looks like to making those improvements well i i think i've alluded to it a lot and that is recruiting 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 transfer portal recruiting all of it like this is a talent acquisition business and for us to take the next step, we need to we need to flip this roster quickly. And we saw the impact. The best players on the team this year were Billy Napier freshmen or portal players, outside of maybe the Anthony Richardson, a Gervon Dexter, a Ventrell Miller. Outside of that, the majority of the impact players on this team were folks that he brought in this past season. So that should tell you something. It also just there was this, uh, a tweet that was out there this week. Only three total penalties the entire season, three total, were committed by a Billy Napier player. Either that's a recruit or a transfer portal player. It's pretty amazing. Only three. That should tell us a lot about the buy-in, that the type of player that he's looking for. He can get them to buy into the system quickly. So the faster we flip this roster, the faster we can improve and get better. I truly believe that. And, I, and you know, and I, I'll push back a little bit on what Dustin was saying, how we might have to start off over at the quarterback position. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. If you go into the transfer portal and find the right quarterback, We, I, you've seen the impact what portal quarterbacks can do for a college football team. Everybody remembers Joe Burrow. We don't have to look far. Look at Hendon Hooker in Tennessee. Look at Caleb Williams at USC. I mean, I, I know I'm probably missing a bunch of other examples, but the, the transfer portal quarterback can absolutely change the complete outlook of a team the next season. So there may be a name out there right now that we haven't heard yet that we may get. You never know. Or we might get Sam Hartman. I mean, he's, he's a name that's been floating around there, too. There are guys out there that are going to be in the portal that we're going to be able to have an opportunity to bring in for at least a season. So if we could get a grad transfer quarterback as sort of a bridge to the Jaden Rashada and hopefully DJ Lagway as he's making his commitment in three days for 2024, that, that, that I believe can remedy the quarterback situation pretty quickly and at the same time improve our chances of success next season. The big thing that I'll say, and, and we are recruiting Twitter account put this out the other day, and that is, as of yesterday, now there's another portal kid in there with Corey Collier entering today. We're over 45% now of the roster flipping from basically guys leaving the program and then we're going to have to fill the spot. So right now we're up to 16 available scholarships for next season to fill. That's going to be done through the high school um, recruiting process between now and National Signing Day, as well as the transfer portal. That is a huge opportunity to remake this roster, get the players in that are going to buy into the vision, continue to build the foundation, and be able to make plays hopefully next season. And, and we need to go out and get guys in the portal, too, that are impact players. 
impact players that are going to be able to start from day one, like a Montrell Johnson, like an Osiris Torrens, like a Ricky Pearsall, guys that have experience in the college game, looking for a new situation, uh, maybe an NIL opportunity, and they come in and they make a major impact uh, in year in their first year in the program. So, uh, and then the other thing is you're going to have to see some of these younger players start to make that next step. Uh, you know, Trevor Etienne had a, an incredible season this year, but we need to start, we need to see if he can take that next jump because we think his potential is all American. We, you know, a guy with a brick outside the stadium. Can he take that next step? Can Montreal Johnson take that next step? Uh, can Ricky Pearsall, you know, improve his ability? I mean, he had a, I think a solid season. I think there's opportunities for him to even have a better season next year and get higher, uh, be a higher draft pick in 2024. So I, there's there's opportunities. You know, other guys like Xavier Henderson, uh, you know, I can go down the list. Guys coming back next year, especially on offense, that are going to have an opportunity to prove themselves. And they're going to have to work really hard this offseason in order to improve. But that's what I'll say, talent acquisition. We flip this roster fast. That's what's going to lead to a quick transition for Napier. Well, there's only I, – I agree with everything you said. And I know Dustin is just gnashing his teeth ready to respond here. I know he's what he's going to say. But before we do that – Chris, the, the idea of getting a transfer a transfer portal quarterback is good. The problem is the guys you just mentioned, Hendon Hooker uh, and Joe Burrow, they needed until their second years to become instant impact guys. The reason Caleb Williams was an instant success, hit the ground running, was because he followed his coach in an identical offensive system. Florida can't afford that. We're talking about, all right, Napier goes six and six in year one. We, we can't wait. For year three, we just we all sat here and said six and six, seven and five, a Q, a new QB learns. No, that's not good enough. You need to win more games next year. You you cannot have like Tennessee went seven and five in Hennon Hooker's first year. Joe Burrow, a little bit better at LSU, but he also had a lot more talent around him and took a big leap from year one to year two in that LSU system. But Florida cannot wait for a second year for a transfer portal quarterback to have that impact. No, I, I agree. I think it needs to be, like I mentioned, a grad transfer quarterback who's started, played multiple games. That's why I mentioned Sam Hartman. I think Sam Hartman's the perfect candidate for that because he has, you know, he's broken records in the ACC. Just a, a quarterback of that caliber. And other people are going to have the same idea as we are if he enters the portal. So it's not like we're not going to have other people to fight off for him. But I think that this is a an attractive opportunity for a quarterback to come in for one year, play out of their mind, and get drafted. Because then You'll have you'll have a room ready to inherit the reins the next year, whether that's Rashada, a Lagway, a Max Brown, whoever it may be. I think we need to improve at quarterback, of course, especially with Anthony Richardson more than likely on his way out. And of course, defense. Now, real quick, I want to I want to amend something in terms of starting over at quarterback. That's what we're doing for the bowl game. I mean, who are you looking at? Max Brown, Jack Miller. I mean, that's really going to be your your options for quarterback for the bowl game. Now, putting that aside and looking at next year, I think you have to go after a Sam Hartman. I mean, I love what he put together uh, during his career thus far at Wake Forest. I mean, he's got 35 touchdowns to 11 interceptions, 3,400 yards through the air, and my favorite stat for quarterbacks, completion percentage, 63%. Anytime you're throwing for over 60% in an offense like that, you're doing something good. And if he's our guy 
if he's playing quarterback for, for Florida, I mean, you talk about the offense and the difference in the offense. I think that the offense the Wake Forest runs to the offense that Florida runs, I think that there's a very smooth transition. On top of that, we have excellent running backs. Okay, with the with the exception of a few guys leaving, um, I think our offensive line is going to be pretty much uh, a complete unit next year. We have some amazing guys coming in. Um, we we would ho- we should hopefully be getting a transfer guy with experience. Um, but I, I like the guys we have returning on the offensive line. Our running backs are incredible. Uh, Trevor Etienne, amazing. Montreal Johnson, amazing. Though, I mean, that duo will be talked about next year as one of the top duos in the nation. No questions asked. Incredible. Okay. Offense is going to be okay. We should score enough points to win games. We scored enough points this year to win a lot of games. The problem this year was not our offense. I mean, come on. I mean, you, you go back to, you go back to 2012. How many Gator fans that remember that season would wish, would wish that they had the defense, the offense that we have this year? I mean, that defense in 2012 was incredible. We did not have the offense, and we did not win the championship we could have won because of that. This year, I'm not saying that our offense could have won a championship, but our defense was awful. Our defense was in the bottom 30 in multiple categories. Our our defense is what needs to improve. And our defense has to improve. It has to improve both schematically and on the field. And to Chris's point, I think that there's going to be a lot of addition by subtraction. Okay, There's a lot of guys that are moving on. I know you mentioned Collier moving on. We wish him all the best. And I'm not saying that Collier would have been a bad player if he stayed. All I'm saying is that this roster needs to be transformed on the defensive side of the ball. And when you have guys that are going to anchor this defense, okay, guys like uh, Shamar James, okay, guys like Wilson. I mean, you look at uh, Chris McClellan, what he was able to do um, in, in, in some of his time. I think we have a lot coming back, a lot to be excited about. And if you've been following recruiting, there's a lot to be excited about coming on the trail. A guy that I really hope we get is Desmond Ricks. If we can get him five-star cornerback and anchor that part of the the recruiting class, I think we'll be going a long way in our past defense for next year and, and years moving forward. But just to bring it all together, we have to, have to, have to get the right guy quarterback. Okay, And defensively, we have to flip this roster. And if we do that, I think we'll be successful. I think you're wishing for a lot getting Desmond Ricks. I mean, it's possible, but I – I wouldn't bet on it, but all right. So you, you guys have, have used your, your time to answer this question to just talk recruiting, which I, I understand because that's why we brought Napier in. And like Chris was talking about earlier, he didn't have ample time to do that in his first off season. So now he's going to really have to do it in his second, but you know, guys, he has some massive in-game deficiencies. He has to go. First of all, uh, he's got to go through what I call timeout school. He has to learn how to more appropriately and just more beneficially use them. But I think in general, Napier has to realize what personnel he has and do a better job of 
making sure that the personnel he has is put in better positions to utilize their strengths to help the Florida Gators win games. I think Anthony Richardson is most likely gone, so we will not see him get to 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 amend this next year with Richardson. But this was a perfect example. Richardson was a Dan Mullen recruit. Richardson was a spread guy. Napier is a pro-style guy by nature. And I think that Napier did, to a degree, kind of try to meet him in the middle. We, we did see some zone reads. We saw a couple of options here and there. But we also saw what Richardson was able to do in Dan Mullen's offense in 2021. Now, granted... He was a backup there, meaning there was not a ton of tape on him and not a lot expected of him. And it was a limited sample size, but, you know, something was just off. He did not always seem his most comfortable, most notably against Kentucky. And we can talk about how there was an injury scare in that game, but we also saw Richardson look very uncomfortable during a lot of points in the season beyond that game. And, I think for Napier to be a great coach, the next time he's in a position where there's somebody so ridiculously talented that you cannot not recruit him and is on your roster, he has to do what he can do to make sure that these guys are using their strengths to help his team out. And look, if it's at the quarterback position, like let's say there is a Cam Newton on the trail that and he's from Gainesville or an AR 2.0 from Gainesville or from Jacksonville, grew up a Gator fan. You can't not recruit him because he's unbelievably talented. You have to have him. It's an impact guy. So if that, in that situation, sure, you can have a few pro style plays in there that personally fit what you do just to throw off the defense and mess with them. Um, and also if you're star QB that you're changing the whole offense for gets hurt and you're, and the backup that you've got is more of a pro style guy, well, then you can work with that limited pro-style playbook the rest of that game before you do install the next week. But as a whole, he's got to realize what he has, the personnel he has, and how to coach to their strengths. Mullen was great at that. Napier, granted, year one, but Napier did a bad job of that. And I'm not just talking about QBs here. Let's say that you find two scatbacks on the recruiting trail that you know from Jacksonville, grew up Gator fans. They run 4.3140s, just absolutely blazing speed that you, you have to have them. You can't let them go somewhere else because they don't fit what you want. No, you have to use them because they're just unbelievably talented. And if you don't get them, a rival of yours probably will. So let's say those are your running backs. Napier has to know in that situation, hey, you know what? I like running between the tackles. I like just calling power runs and letting my big uglies up front just bruise some guys on the defensive line and just clear some space for four or five yards. And maybe they can even clear a big hole for my, my running backs to just break through. But maybe I can't do that with these guys. Maybe we have another Jeff Demps or Chris Rainey who just aren't built for that. They're, they're built for running outside, bouncing runs outside and getting big chunk plays that way. Maybe he has to make that adjustment and say, I cannot do that. I have to call different plays because I have different personnel. And then there's the other stuff we talked about all year long. The, the management of the timeouts, I thought, ranged from acceptable to questionable to downright malpractice at times. He, he's got to sit down and do cost-benefit analysis of each situation. Is it worth burning a timeout here? What does a timeout do to help me? How dearly will not having this timeout cost me later on in the game? Is it really worth saving five yards for my offense 
to not have a timeout with two minutes to go in the game down seven while the other team is trying to bleed the clock out. No, he needs to have answers to all of these things in the offseason so he doesn't have to scramble around on game day trying to wonder what to do. Meanwhile, the clock bleeds out or he badly botches the timeout. And guys, he can recruit all he wants. He can get all the talent he wants. But we talked about this in our preseason pod too. Uh, I think Zach Goodall brought this up. A real good measure of a program is how they do in one-score games. And if Florida is on par talent-wise with LSU, with Alabama, with Georgia, uh, I mean, say Auburn becomes a power and we play them more, or Tennessee stays really good. If we're in these one-score games with them, Dustin, you talked about being competitive with them. These are all close games. Right this second, I'll take the other team. I do not trust Billy Napier right now to do what has to be done late in these close games to give Florida the edge. And that goes into the play calling, too. We saw him do that against FSU, coming out throwing on three straight possessions to start the second half. Florida goes three and out, three drives in a row, zero points on those combined three drives. Florida really could have used a touchdown on any of those three instead of punting because Florida just throws the ball on seven of those nine plays, which results in six incompletions and a sack and two runs that don't get the necessary yardage. So Napier has to realize what his team's strengths are and play to them. That goes into how he uses his personnel and how he calls plays in general too. So these are the adjustments that I really need to see. I trust him on the recruiting trail, guys. He's done a great job with that so far. Florida's floor is probably ninth or 10th in the country, the ninth or 10th best class in the country. I trust him there. I do not trust him on the field. He has got to make some adjustments there. And obviously the defense, I mean, we, we kind of beat that to death. Uh, we'll talk about that actually in a second again, because guys, it's time for our final, final word of the season. We do this after every game. We're going to put a bow on the season by recapping the same sorts of things. We're going to talk about what we thought the play of the year was for Florida, the player of the year. And then we're going to give final grades for offense, defense, special teams, coaching, and Overall. So Chris, you first, what have you got? So my play would start with play of the year. Okay. So play of the year for me, it it goes back to the Utah game. There are two particular plays I think of, but the one I'm going to pick just because it was such a cool moment being there in the swamp for it was Amari Bernie's interception of Cam rising with with 28 seconds left in the game. It was, it was just an incredible moment. The, we thought they were about to score and, and and beat us at the last second on a heartbreaker, but just the exhilaration of that interception and hearing the crowd roar uh, brought back a lot of great memories and is a great memory now in the swamp for forever to come. I mean, we're going to be telling our, our kids about that moment in the swamp. I mean, it was it was it was a great, awesome way to kick off uh, Billy Napier's coaching tenure at Florida. So that that probably will be the moment that always sticks out for me this season. So for my play of the year, I've been going back and forth between several plays. And because this season was not a positive season, I'm going to have to go with a play on, on more of the negative side. I know that we typically do that when a play is consequential. And I'm going to go with that interception that versus Vanderbilt, the one where it appeared that the ball could have touched the ground, but the the Vanderbilt defender came up with the ball and 
it, it really sealed the deal for that particular game. And the reason why I picked that one as a consequential play of the year and not, you know, maybe a, a missed opportunity on defense versus LSU or an interception versus Georgia. The reason why I'm not going with that is because an eight and four year is a lot different than a six and six year. We talked about it at the beginning of the pod, and I mentioned again, that loss to Vanderbilt was unacceptable. And I think that if we execute on that drive and we score a touchdown instead of get getting uh, turned over right there against Vanderbilt, I think it has an impact on the entire year. And I think that we even potentially bounce and, and, and beat Florida State. Now, of course, there's no guarantee we beat Florida State, but we got pretty close right there. And that play, I'm just going to go and say it right there, is the play of the year for me. Neil, what are you, what are you thinking? So I know that y'all, especially you and Casey, used to call me Debbie Downer, but I'm actually going to go with a positive because as I have – laid out many times on this podcast. I do not have a high opinion of Spencer Rattler and watching Desmond Watson stiff arm him into next Monday was absolutely glorious for me. So first, I mean, Desmond Watson gets payback on the two guys that mocked our Gator chop first, Jaheim Bell, just taking the ball away from him. Like, thank you very much. That's mine. You're a nobody. You know, you don't matter. I'm just taking this go down, just fall down now takes it away. And then he just starts running the other way. Spencer Rattler tries to tackle him and he just puts his arm out and into his face and just stiff arms him backwards. He does fall down. It would have been really cool if he'd scored on that, but he was losing control of the ball. So he had to go down. So he you know, wouldn't lose the moment and lose the ball and turn it over there. So uh, Desmond Watson gets a massive, massive round of applause for me. Uh, the hell with Rattler, the hell with Jaheim Bell. They can, you know, enjoy being posterized with that play for the rest of eternity. So also the last positive game for Florida. Well, a good honorable mention, since you didn't mention it, would be the 60-yard touchdown run that Anthony Richardson had against, against A&M. Texas A&M. Yep. That was a big one. Sure, sure. Definitely helped. Uh, so player of the year for Florida, for you, Chris, is who? I'm going to I'm gonna go with... I'll say Trevor Etienne. I think that he, without him in this offense, he was such a – it was it's thunder and lightning between him and Montreal Johnson. It's kind of hard to split the baby on that one. But I'm going to say I'm going to say uh, Trevor Etienne because just his impact as a freshman coming in and being one of the best running backs in the SEC this season is, is just – it bodes well for the future, for the growth of this program, but it's impressive for a guy who's 18 years old who was playing high school football just like a year ago, already making an impact in a major SEC program like he did. Uh, I I think he he should be an all uh, freshman all, uh, SEC player, no doubt. Uh, but I think just the impact that he made on this team, running the football so effectively, and it's, it's going to be exciting to watch him over the next couple of years grow um, in this offense. Well, I think you I think you're right in the nose, Chris. Our rushing attack was elite. And so for that reason, I'm gonna have to go with two players. Um actually, Deal, were you gonna pick an offensive lineman for your player of the year? Yeah, you know I was too. Okay, <laughs> then I'm gonna I'm just gonna go with one. I'm gonna go with Montreal Johnson. Over eight hundred yards on the ground, ten touchdowns. What an what an amazing year for that guy. Oh, man. 
we we're gonna be we're gonna have a very special year next year with him and and uh, Etn running the rock. So that's my player of the game. How about you, Neil? How about the guy that doesn't give up a sack for his entire career? That I mean, that's just unbelievable. It's one thing to do that in the Sun Belt for for three years. It's Osiris Torrance, by the way, if you haven't figured that out yet. But it's one thing to do that in the Sun Belt, where you know you're going up against three four star guys. Maybe all the big dogs, the Georgias, Alabama, Texas, Michigan, Florida, Ohio State. You know, all the miss on a guy, and he winds up being a star. But to go a whole year in the SEC and not be responsible for a single sack. Granted, Anthony Richardson is really athletic. That does help with that, but that's an unbelievable stat. And it wasn't like guys came close. It wasn't like that stat was really in peril either. Watching all those game films, like you know, I cut those games up and put them on YouTube in condensed fashion. So going through that game film, it wasn't like there were a lot of close calls either. He he did a tremendous job. And you want to talk honorable mentions, you can talk about Richard Garage, Ethan White. Uh, I mean, the whole offensive line was good. Tarquin, Austin Barber played well. The whole offensive line did great. So if you're going to give a unit of the year, it would, it would have to be them. But if you're going to talk one guy, it's got to be Cybo. So that's the fun part of this. Now we get to the not fun part of this, which is going to be the grades. Chris... You first. So with offense, I'm gonna I'm gonna go B minus, and that's kind of around where I've had them all season. And I think that they're gonna they get a B minus for me. They get that high of a grade just because they how effectively they ran the football, incredibly efficient there, averaging 213 yards a game. It, we. The padlock stack of 210 yards, a game that Dustin coined this year, was almost undefeated, almost undefeated until the last game of the season. But I think that this offense has opportunities to grow next year. I'm a lot more optimistic about the offense with some of the players returning than I am about the defense. I think the defense needs more personnel overhaul than the offense does. So I think that with... uh, 441 yards averaging for the offense is a good year. So I'm going to give them a B minus with the defense. They get a fail. This was historically the worst. Uh, it's that F as we say, uh, we coined it last week, that F it just, we can go into it ad nauseum, but the, the, this was just an awful, awful defense. Dustin mentioned how they are ranked in the bottom 30 multiple categories that has to change. So they're going to get that F special teams. I'm going to give them an F two. They just did not do much for us to change games. If you're going to coin them a game changer, you, they better be game changers. They were not game changers at all. In fact, they were game changers in the wrong way in some cases. I think we probably lost the Vanderbilt game because of the game changers, quote unquote. So I think for them, they need to, we need, I want to see maybe Trey Smack become the kicker next year. Hopefully he gets healthy and is effective, but that, that's who I'd like to see. So special teams with an F coaching. Coaching, I'm going to grade out at a C. I think that they deserve a ton of credit for keeping this roster together. This team did not quit. You have to remember, this is the same team that quit on Dan Mullen in 2021 after he quit on them. And once you quit once, it's easy to quit twice. And they did not do that. And that's a credit to this coaching staff for instilling a good culture uh, in that building. They fought hard in every single game. And they deserve credit for that. But as Neil mentioned, there are a lot of issues with game management. 
And this staff has to figure out how to better manage certain situations during the game. They have to be better play callers on the offense. Billy Napier needs to be a better play caller, more consistent play caller, especially when he knows he has a great run game, run the damn ball, you know, but, and then on the defensive side, Patrick, Tony's got a lot of things to answer for. So for me, this coaching staff gets a C. They don't get a failing grade in their first year. I think they did a lot of good things in building this culture, building this program where it needs to go. But they have a lot of things to work on personally with themselves to become better coaches for this team in this program next year. So for that reason, I give them a C. So the total team grade, so we got a B minus, a C, and two Fs. Man, I'm I'm gonna have to probably grade it out at around a D. I think a failing grade would have been if we missed a bowl game, but I'll give a D just because we did make the bowl game. We showed some promising things on the offensive side of the ball, but we have a lot of work to do in areas of game management, play calling, defense, 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 and actually game changing with our special teams. That's about what I expected. Uh, Dustin, what say you? Yes. So for offense, I'm going to give him a solid B. There was a lot of bright spots with the offense this year. I thought Ricky Pearsall had an excellent year catching the ball. I know we didn't really talk about him a lot thus far in this episode, and he definitely needs a shout out. Um, I mean, we we went on and on about how well we ran the ball. One of the best teams in the nation running the ball. The offense was not the reason why we went six and six this year. We we pretty much scored enough points in every game to win, with the exception of maybe that Kentucky game, which was abysmal. Um, but other than that, I got to give him a B. A. And uh, for the for the final year stats, I'm actually going to sign a percentage as well. So I'm going to do an 84% for the offense. As far as defense, awful. Uh, what a what a disgusting, terrible, outside the Gator standard performance from the defense this year. Um, at times they played out of position. Other times they played like they didn't even want to be on the field. And that's that's disheartening. And while this team didn't quit, I really felt that at times the defense the defense did not do what they had to do to win. And that's that's really all I have to say about that. And then, you know, for that 35%, special teams, I think we've been a very, very hard on the special teams this year. Early in the season, I think that there was a lot of things that kind of caused all of us to scratch our heads. Um, you know, there there's uh there's been times where we run the ball out of the end zone on, on kickoffs and it made no sense because we literally get the ball to like the 18 or the 22 yard line. But toward the end of the season, I really liked the fact that we had uh, ETN um, returning kickoffs and we had Pearsall returning punts. And I think that really helped us. Both were excellent at what they did. Now, should you have the best players on your team in, in those spots? Probably not. Got to protect them from getting injury. Uh, and special teams tends to be where a lot of injuries happen. So um, special teams, I'm going to give them a B-80%. Coaching, it's all of our favorite grades. We love grading our coaching staff. Um, couch tweeters, as uh as, as as my buddies over at Gators Breakdown like to call it. But I got to give the coaching a D plus. We uh, – they weren't necessarily a failure because, like I said, with the offense, there were some bright spots. But unfortunately, 
where the bright spots were, there was also some dark spots too. And because a large part and due to some of the crazy, awful, head-scratching decisions that Napier made in-game, um, we lost some games. I think we have a good chance to beat FSU if we called the right plays and and not make those coaching blunders. I think we I think we uh we get close to LSU. I think we beat Kentucky even if we if we make better coaching decisions. Unfortunately we didn't and for that reason I gotta give us a sixty six percent D plus. And if you take all those numbers, you average them together, my overall grade is a sixty six percent D. The odd thing is that's pretty much what the coaching grade is. It makes sense. Your coaching grade is bad. Your overall grade is going to be pretty bad too. Neil, what do you say? Uh, the offense is going to be by far the nicest grade. I'll give them a C plus. I'll give them because we're going to do numbers because it's the last one of the year. I'll say C plus plus. I'll say seventy nine. It was not not quite a B minus. They they were fine. They they did what they were supposed to do. The offensive line by itself gets an A plus. The running backs get. A's. I mean, you'd like there to not be that fumble at the end of the Utah game that, you know, if that takes a bounce a different way, that probably costs us the ball game. But uh, the running game as a whole gets the A. They were excellent passing game. I mean, Richardson's a big part of this. So he just wasn't there as a passer this year. I When, I went, when he dropped back to pass, I, I would not objectively trust him to make the right read and throw the right ball. And sometimes he did, but sometimes he didn't. So the offense as a whole gets a 79 because it was inconsistent because it did some things well and some things not well. It's a passing grade, but it's not an excellent grade by any means because we saw the offense completely sputter out against uh, against Kentucky. We saw it try to give the game away against South Florida, and we saw it sputter at points when we really needed them against Vanderbilt and against Georgia. Granted, a very good defense there, but nonetheless. So C-plus for them, 79. Defense, th- this is the worst defense in the modern era of college football for the Florida Gators. Since black people were allowed to play, since integration of the sport, this was the single worst defense the Florida Gators have ever put out. And, and it's not close. The, the second worst was that defense in 2020 that we were all screaming about, how it was disgracing the logo, how it was just embarrassing, how Grantham was well beyond the point of he should have been fired. This is t- 19 places worse than that defense, 102nd in the FBS. That is objectively disgraceful. And I say disgraceful, I, I use that word because from compiling texts from some former players, from from tweets, from DMs, other posts on other social platforms, I have gotten the impression that a lot of former players feel personally let down, especially on the defense side of the ball. They feel betrayed that they worked so hard. They worked day and night to improve their craft and be the best they could be for the Florida Gator logo, just to sit back now that their playing days are over and watch a lot of other players. Not all. I will shout out Chris McClellan. I will shout out Shamar James. I will shout out Jason Marshall. I will shout out Scooby Williams. Gervon Dexter, this does not go for all of them, but a lot of these players, these former players I'm talking about, feel betrayed that they worked as hard as they did for the logo to watch other players put on the same jerseys, wear the same colors, and put out a defensive product that ranks outside the top 100 in the FBS. That they feel like, wait, we just we killed ourselves just to watch this. No, that's that's not that's that's not going to fly. So, 
an absolutely disgraceful performance by the defense all year. On merit, this defense probably gets about a 15 or a 20, but this would be like if you answered 15 to 20% of the questions correctly, but then you just wrote profanities all over the paper. Like, you, you know, you get 15% of the possible points you can possibly get, but then you write F you to the teacher. So you get a zero because of, of the complete disrespect you show. And because that's what this was. This was this was a completely disrespectful unit. It, it was disrespectful to the legacy that the Florida Gators have built of having elite defenses. So yeah, because of that that element of disrespect, it gets to zero. I would give them the 15% based on merit because they were good against Utah and Kentucky. And some players, we saw them improve throughout the years. I mentioned McClellan, James, Scooby, Jason Marshall was good. Um, Ventral Miller, obviously got to shout him out. Ventral Miller was very good. But on the whole, this this was a performance that I would say uh, cheapened the Florida Gator brand of having elite defenses. On the last pod, we talked about that. All those years of finishing top 10 in the country in defenses, and now you're not even in the top 100. So, yeah, this, this was an embarrassment of a defense. Special teams. D and very, very, very close to failing, but they get a D because for the most part, the start of the year and the middle of the year, they were fine. The last three games of the year probably could not have gone a whole lot worse. They literally handed the Vanderbilt game away, tried their best to lose to South Carolina, but thankfully the other two units were on top of their game and they blew South Carolina out, but probably going to need a new, a new kicker next year. Adam Mahalik was okay. He was fine in spots, but missed a couple of kicks that, college kickers should make so i'll give them a d just barely passing but a lot to improve on i'll give them a 66 for that and coaching will get coaching's hard because they had they they had the players motivated they had them ready to go and as chris talked about they had them refuse to quit for the entire year so i'll give them a, a passing grade there but again ever so slightly above that passing and failing line. I'll say that that's a a 65, a straight D for that too. So overall, uh, the defense drags us down to a failing grade, guys. We talked about it and before the pod started, and then we talked about it on the pod. That six and six was, according to all of us in that preseason pod, was not going to be acceptable. Six and six would be a failure of the season. And with you, you couple that with the grades I just gave. This was a failure of a season for Florida. So give them about a forty-five. They did some positive things, but the negatives brought it down. And I mean, guys, we're going to remember this as a failure. And just to that last point, real quick, before we move on to our final final segment, if you, if anyone thinks that I'm being, you know, too harsh and you know, oh Neil, why are you just criticizing the players? Why are you chastising them? They're doing their best. I, I'm just going to sit here and say, okay, ask them, ask the players. What what do you think? Do you think that the 2022 season was a good one? Do you think that six and six was what you came to the University of Florida to achieve? I'm not being overly critical for the sake of it. It's not fun for me to play this role. I'm just I'm I'm curious. Like if you think that the players are are going to say that yeah, this was a good season. We hit the Gator standard. Okay, ask them and and see what you get. See what response you get from that question. So. All right, last topic of discussion for this final pod uh, or the the season recap pod of the 2022 season. We talked about 
in great detail all the things that went wrong in 2022. We talked about what we needed to see next year for the Gators to be a better football team. But what what do we think Florida's final record should be in 2023 if all the things that need to be done are done? What 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 record will be one that we deem to be successful next year? I mean, I said it earlier. I think that minimum, you know, eight to nine wins, but I prefer nine to ten because uh, I think that the logical logic, you know, your third, you're passing your third year, three year test. Florida, in order to do that for Billy Napier, he would have to make and win the SEC championship game and therefore the college football playoff in 2024 for him to pass it. It's going to be easier for him to pass it now uh, because now that we've gone to 12 teams for 2024, but I would say he'd have to eventually win the SEC by that third year. So for next year, I think as the bridge to that, nine to 10 wins is where you got to be. And if you look at the schedule, you know, I have it pulled up here. First game going to Utah. Yes, we're going to Utah. I mean, a tough environment to play in, but that's going to be a Utah team that is going to lose a lot of their roster. This, this Utah team this year was uh, picked as a college football playoff candidate because of how much they did return. And losing games like to us, to UCLA, derailed that. They would have, But if they hadn't lost those games, they would have been in the playoff today. So, you know, I, but, I, but I think that with them losing all those players, Florida potentially could be favored in that game just because of that. And a lot's going to happen between now and then. We'll have to see how things go in recruiting and in the portal for both schools. But I, I think that's a game where Florida can win. Then you have McNeese State at home. Tennessee at home, Charlotte at home. The schedule then starts to set up rather nicely. you got some home games there where you can start getting into it. That's going to be a Tennessee team without a Hendon Hooker. You know, they're going to they're gonna be going through some changes next offseason as well. And then you go at Kentucky. We have to start beating the Kentuckys of the world. Home against Vanderbilt, then at South Carolina, Georgia, Arkansas, LSU, Missouri, Florida State. I think the schedule gets harder as you get into, like, by the time you get to that Georgia South Carolina game, that's when it really picks up. But I could see a, a scenario where we go into that Georgia game with only one loss. I mean, I, I really do. I think it's a possibility. So I'm going to say nine and three would be my hope for next season, with the chance to get the tenth win in the bowl game minimum. That that that's to show improvement. My expectations next year need to be around nine wins. Yeah, Chris, I mean, you look at the schedule, I think pretty much every game is winnable. The The two games that I kind of circle and question whether we can actually come out with the dub, you know, you look at that LSU game on the road, and then you also look at the Georgia game, of course, with how elite they are and the talent they continue to bring in. Other than that, I think we should we should win every game. Now, we saw this year, I mean, Texas A&M, from a record standpoint, was pretty abysmal. But I think we could all agree that's a game that we penciled preseason as some as a game that we that we probably were going to lose. Now, we didn't lose that game. We won. Um, and obviously, AM was significantly worse than people were expecting. So that's that. Um, but this early, I look at those two games, that LSU and that Georgia game, as kind of the questionable ones. But I think there's 10 games on our schedule for next year that we have a good shot to win. And that's really where I'm going to set the over-under for next year in terms of our win-loss record. You know, could I pick an 11-1 and 
depending on what our roster looks like, possibly. Could I go lower, do an eight and four or a nine and three? That's also very possible, especially if we can't figure it out at quarterback and our defense continues to uh, look like the same defense that we've had in this previous year. Um, there's still a lot of question marks. So that, that's kind of where I sit. And um, we, I look forward to seeing how this offseason uh, plays out. Florida, for all intents and purposes, has to go 8-4 and four next year at an absolute minimum. If we're going to talk about Napier being the guy that we think he's supposed to be, you, you can't go 6-6 six and six again next year. That's not going to cut it. You can't go 7-5 and five next year. That's not going to cut it. That's just not good enough. And I think eight and four is a pretty low bar. I think nine and three is more of a respectable goal, but you cannot be any worse than eight and four and expect to come back for a third year. You you can't go six and six and seven and five in your first two years. That That's just not going to do it. Um, but like I said, I don't think that's the case. I think nine and three shows good growth. I have trust in Napier to do what needs to be done this offseason to overhaul the roster to get some of his some more of his guys in and for the results to start taking that pretty steady uptick as opposed to the sine waves that we saw this year where you go up and down with all these peaks and valleys i expect there to be more consistency next year i expect to see that growth and i think that we're going to see florida beat some teams some more teams that we're supposed to beat. Like I said a couple pods ago, I, I, I cited that Greg McElroy talking point from the offseason. If you're Florida, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him again, I'm just going back to what he said at SEC Media Days in July. Greg McElroy saying, if you're Florida, stop talking about Georgia. Stop talking about Alabama. You're not ready for them. Don't worry about what Georgia's doing on the trail. Don't worry about Alabama. You just lost to Kentucky. You lost to Missouri. You lost to South Carolina. This talking about 21 season. You lost to those teams. Worry about that. Worry about beating those teams. You say you're better than them. You say that you're superior to them. Well, they all beat you. You got to worry about that first. I think we're going to see Florida do more of that in 23 than we saw in 22. We, we did beat South Carolina. We did beat Missouri, but we went backwards in terms of losing to Vanderbilt and we lost to Kentucky at home. I think that those games we're going to see Florida take care of. I still have questions about going to LSU, Georgia at this point. I, I don't see a reason to believe we're going to beat them. And we're going to have to start talking about as uncomfortable as this is, is FSU a team that is going to be a problem on a yearly basis? They might be, they might not be, but you cannot say at this particular point in time that that's a game Florida should win. They could win it, but you can't say that Florida should win that game. So nine and three means Florida is beating those teams that Greg McElroy is talking about and that we talked about in the last couple of pods that Florida should be beating because we believe and we have historical evidence to back this up that we are better than. I think we'll see that. The questions come with, is there a single slip up? Do we get intimidated by the crowd at South Carolina? Do we get uncomfortable on the road at Utah? Do we get uncomfortable on the road at Kentucky? I think we will see Florida lose potentially one of those games. But the way I see it, Florida's probably losing to Georgia and at LSU because that, that game is Casey ruled. I don't I don't care what the teams look like. I will not predict Florida to beat them until I actually see it happen. I am assuming those two are losses. That puts Florida at 0-2 right now. 
go nine and one in your other 10. Because all 10 of those other games are against the teams that you are, you as Gator fans, we as Gator fans are saying that we are supposed to be better than, that we are supposed to be beating. Go 90%, win nine of those 10. You're, you're allowed one slip up. You're allowed one mess up. And if you go nine and three next year with no albatrosses, you know, that there's no, there's no 60 point loss to Georgia. There's no Vanderbilt eyesore. You go nine and three next year. I think that is a real respectable step forward. And that is real indication to believe that Billy Napier is the guy and gives us a lot of real hope and real reason to believe in what he can do for year three. Yeah. Yeah. No, we'll just have to see. I mean, I think the schedule sets up for, for an opportunity to do that. If you beat the teams you're supposed to beat, that is the next step that we have to take. We have to beat Kentucky every single year again. We have to beat Vanderbilt every single time we play them again. You know, you have to beat, you have to be better than South Carolina. You have to be better than Missouri. You know, those are the, those are the schools we're better than straight up. So we will, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, we got Florida State at home next year. That's another one where I think we're going to be in a revenge spot there from this past season. You know, we'll see. It, it, the November slate is actually really interesting because you come off the Georgia game, you play a home game versus Arkansas, and then you have two straight road games before you end with FSU. And you know what? Fairly challenging road games. I think LSU is traditionally one of our most difficult opponents we play on the road. It's one of the most hostile environments all of college football death valley and then missouri of course you know you either get it's late november so it's going to be cold and you either get a nooner or you get it starts at 11 o'clock or you get a, a night game and it's frigid so and, and i'm not one to say that like you know cold weather will was reasons why we lose games i don't really think that's true but it, it you know it's it, it makes it a little interesting uh going up to columbia there so we've, we've had mixed results in columbia since they've joined the sec I don't think cold weather helps. No. It no. definitely does not increase Florida's chances of winning games. How well, much I mean, it hurts it is up for debate. We, we, I mean, when you are an effective run team, though, it, it definitely can help, I, I think, because it's a lot harder to tackle when it's cold. And if you're running the ball very effectively and you're just pushing guys over, then, you know, then that, that can go actually in your favor. But it's also a lot we, easier to drop the football. True. Yeah, it, it, it didn't go our way in Vanderbilt this year in Nashville. It was, it was probably one of the coldest uh, people that I talked to that went to that game. It was one of the coldest games they've ever been to. And Nashville was incredibly, uh, unseasonably cold even for that time of year. So yeah, there you go. One data point. But I think if, if, if there's anything to wrap this up, it's that we just need to see how the next couple of weeks and months go for this program. It's, it's just the time when we have to lay, Billy Napier has to lay the foundation and the groundwork by bringing in the right guys that are going to transform his program and make a big jump to year two. In his first year at Louisiana, he went seven and seven. In his second year, he went, uh, I think it was 10 and three. He had a 10 and two record, or no, is it 11 three? I think it might've gone 11 three. I could double check that, but they, they, they started the season 10 and one. They are in their two of their losses were to App State. They lost to App State in the regular season and they lost the conference title game to App State. And then I, I do think they won their bowl game. I can't quite remember. But that is a big jump from one year to the next. And that would be a jump that we could hopefully see from Napier in year two at Florida. Yeah. Um, I I mean, first of all, he did win the bowl game. He he won the 
I think it was the lending tree bowl game. They went 11 and three, but mm-hmm. the last thing that, that I, I think should come out of my mouth on this, this recap of the season pod is I, I do trust Billy Napier. I will go back to the, what I said when Dan Mullen was first fired. Napier is my first choice and he is my first choice because I'm tired of these band-aid fixes. I'm tired of slapping scotch tape on bullet hole wounds. I want a long-term fix. I want to build for the future. I believe Napier is the guy that did it because he did exactly that at Louisiana. This first year does raise concerns for me. He is not as good of an in-game coach as Dan Mullen. That is very, very obvious to see. And he has some improvements to make there. He's doing what I thought he would do on the recruiting trail. I do understand that he has had shortcomings at Louisiana that he has learned from. He did not make a lot of the same mistakes multiple times. So that bodes well to him fixing his his in-game coaching deficiencies this year. And I remain positive in that I do trust him to eventually get Florida to where it's supposed to be. I am slightly less confident after year one than I was before year one because as we said, not to be a broken record, but we said we expected eight and four at worst, seven and five, and he did not reach that bar. But my my faith in him has only been shaken very, very slightly. It has not been shaken to a very large degree. I do still believe in him. I think he is the guy, and I think he will do what needs to be done to take Florida to the level it is supposed to be at. I, and I hope he is because I, I really like him as a person. I like him as a CEO. I like him as a recruiter. There's just a lot to like about him. And if he is successful, he will have the support system in place to succeed for a very long time and have a machine that essentially runs itself. And that is, I think, what a lot of Gator fans should be most excited about. The idea that we're not going to be looking for new coaches in four or five years. Is this for real? Is this just a two or three year bridge to the next guy before he burns out like Dan Mullen did? No, he's going to build a machine, at least I think, and hope that will run itself for years to come. Yeah, no, I agree. So we'll see how it goes, Neil. We've got a lot, lot, lot to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, we've got early sign day coming up. we got the commitment of DJ Lagway coming up this week. One way or another, we'll talk about that on our next pod. we got a bowl game coming up a lot sooner than we're used to it coming up for us. Talk about that soon. But, Chris, uh, I, I'm hopeful. That's that's how I'll leave it. I'm hopeful. And I, I, I think that there is real reason to believe and have that hope as opposed to just blindly being hopeful. But we'll have to see. Like you said, we'll just have to wait and see. So, That's all we've got for this episode. If y'all enjoyed listening to our show, please give us a five-star rating and a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Definitely would appreciate that. As we just said, got a lot to talk about coming up. Uh, Chris, it's getting colder up here. Really cold, but uh, I would say stay warm. It doesn't really apply. I know. It doesn't really apply to you to say that. Um, But yeah, stay, stay safe, stay healthy, and... We'll be back on the pod soon talking more Gators because there's to steal a line from another uh, popular Gator podcaster. There's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. <laughs>